many runners do we have in the room today? You can claim past glory. <laughs> How many racers do we have in our midst? Ever run a race? I know that we have hikers here. So I want to I draw on all of your expertise for a little bit. Um, for what does it take to run a good race? Shout out. In your preparation, what goes into preparing for a good race or a good hike? Sweat? Okay. <laughs> Youth. What? Determination. Determination. Shoes. Equipment. You said good training. Water. What we put into our bodies. What else? Time. Putting proper time into training. Mental. Anything mental that goes into the process? A, a killer playlist. Okay, I am not a runner, but I find that I have to trick my mind into thinking that I'm not running in order to do it. Maybe for you, there are mental games that you play, you know, kind of ways that you coach yourself through the race. Does genetics, your family of origin, have anything to do with it, or is that just an excuse that I have? <laughs> Now, my experience in running races goes all the way back to high school. It's how far back I have to go to find kind of those glory days. But fans, the audience around you, does that play a part in how well you do in a race? Having a good audience there cheering you on? Well, this morning we are going to be talking about running a good race. That is the focus of this passage in Hebrews 11 and 12. And so with that kind of framework in mind, um, listen as I read this passage for us. So if you remember, last week Mark read a good chunk of the beginning of chapter 11. This is the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Faith, um, and we're picking up kind of towards the end of that. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I don't even have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect? Therefore, 
since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Lord, as we reflect on these words today, open our hearts to hear from you. What is it that you want us to walk away with this morning as we reflect on what it means to run a good race? Give us ears to hear, Lord, and hearts that are soft and willing to receive your word. Amen. Now, Mark mentioned last week that there is some question about who wrote the book of Hebrews. Some people think Paul wrote it. There are actually more scholars who think that Paul didn't write it. But what is clear as we read through the book of Hebrews is the audience that the author is writing to. This is an audience that is experiencing persecution. The Christians that these words are written to are Christians who are living in a context where it is hard to be a Christian. So they are experiencing persecution in, from a variety of different fronts. They live in the midst of a pagan culture who persecute them for not believing in the Greek and Roman gods that were much more accepted in that culture. The, these Christians would have been persecuted by traditional Jews who viewed the Christian view as a, a heresy. And also going on during this time, Nero was likely the emperor of Rome, and Nero had it in for the Christians. And he, under him, there was significant persecution of Christians. If you read through the history books, you see stories of him burning Christians as tiki churches in his garden parties. It is also likely that this book was written around the time that Paul was killed in Rome. So there's a lot of persecution going on of Christians when this book was written. And these Christians who are receiving these words um, are desperate for a word of encouragement. And so that is the focus of this book. Well, as I was reading through these, these verses this week, I was just struck by what a relevant word this is for us as Christians in Seattle today, right? We, we may not be being burned as tiki torches, but this is a hard climate uh, to cling to your Christian faith in. There, you can't argue with that. We live in the midst of the nun zone in Seattle, where it is um, acceptable to believe pretty much anything other than Jesus is Lord, right? Uh, we live in a culture where people worship all sorts of things. Work, technology, the mountains, yoga is great, um, individual enlightenment is to be pursued, um, charting your own individual course towards God. This is all okay. We got this in the mail um, yesterday. I wish I could zoom in on it. If you see this beautiful kind of mystical angel, this is a, um, an advertisement for Discover Gnosis. And it's a, every Tuesday, 7 p.m., it says, open to the public, um, meditation, alchemy, esotericism, mysticism, Kabbalah, Everything is acceptable, right? Except the belief in Jesus as Lord. 
So this is a challenging place to be a Christian, to claim this particular truth. We, uh, I'm a big fan of buy nothing and have, over the course of the last year, have given and received lots of things on buy nothing. And one evening when my community group was meeting at our home, um, a woman was coming to pick something up off of our front porch right as everyone was showing up for our, we were doing a dinner together that night. And so my dad had opened the door to let some folks from the community group in, and there was this woman coming up to grab something off of the porch. And my dad, I don't know that he knew that she was coming for this, and so he's like, oh, are you here for Bible study? And she's like, oh, no. That is the last thing I am here for. And she grabbed whatever she had come for and took off. And that is just kind of the predominant feeling about Christianity in Seattle. And so there's this subtle but constant pressure for Christians in Seattle to tone down Jesus, isn't there? To look for commonalities with people who, who hold very different views and to focus on those commonalities rather than to be straightforward in expressing our belief in Jesus. But if we set aside Jesus, if we set aside the cross, we're not simply setting aside one aspect of our faith, are we? We are setting aside the core of our faith. And yet, this is a very constant risk in Seattle. And so how do we, in Seattle, in the midst of the nun zone, run with perseverance the race marked out for us? What does that look for us, look like for us here in Seattle? Well, I think that this passage in Hebrews has some helpful things for us to consider. And the first thing that he has just, the author may have actually been a female, that the author has spent a great deal of time pointing us to is the fact that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And so as we seek to live faithful Christian lives in Seattle, I think this is the first thing that we need to remember. Surround yourself with a great cloud of witnesses. Now, scripture is one place where we can be reminded of the great cloud of witnesses who have come before us. And the author of Hebrews has just laid out for us person after person after person from the story of scripture that give us an example, who encourage us, who challenge us to live a life of faith in the midst of challenging circumstances. If Moses could do it, we can do it. If Samuel could do it, we can do it. If Abraham could do it, Rahab, then we too have what it takes to live a life of faith. The great thing about scripture is that these are not heroes up on pedestals. These are ordinary people. And Mark highlighted that a little bit in his sermon last week as he walked through some of the specific people who are listed. Moses was not a saint. He was a murderer who repented and who God used to do amazing things. David was not a saint. These are ordinary people that God has used because of their faithfulness to further his kingdom purposes in the world. And so if they can live faithfully, we can too. And so grounding ourselves in scripture, in the stories of scripture, reading it, being in the midst of it, is one thing that is so important for us as we seek to live faithful lives. Well, each one of us also have our own personal cloud of witnesses, don't we? I want you to take a moment to think back over your life. And for some of us, that's a long span to think back over. Who are some of the cloud of witnesses who have influenced you, who have shaped 
your faith. As I began thinking back, the first people that came to my mind were my parents, Mark's parents. These people who have lived faithful lives, their entire lives, who shaped me and formed me. My parents were my Sunday school teachers. They were the ones who in first grade when I was going to a Catholic school and in the midst of um, first communion classes in a Catholic school, set up my own personal first communion classes with our pastor so that I could navigate the differences between the two. I think about Don Taylor, who was that pastor, who did a one-on-one first communion class with me to help me understand what communion was all about. I think about my college pastor, Mike Gaffney, who was the first person who really trained me as a leader in ministry, who taught me what it meant to follow him as I entered into adulthood. I think about Leslie Sandbolt. She was a woman my parents' age who led my Bible study most of the way through college, who poured into me in the midst of my angst. I was a disaster most weeks coming into her house, but she had this glorious house with a view of the water, and she opened her home and gave me soup and cookies and hot tea, and she led me in conversations about Jesus every week throughout college. What a gift, and that shaped me. I spent time in Kenya a couple of times over the summer when I was in college, and people that I, I have no names for them, but the Kenyan believers that I experienced as I walked into churches and worshipped alongside them, as I went into their homes and ate meals that they had prepared for me, there was such a beautiful faith in the midst of hardship that taught me, that spoke to me. And I could go on and on as I reflect back over my life, the great cloud of witnesses. Who are those people for you? I think it's important to keep these people in mind, to take time periodically to reflect back over our lives, to thank the Lord for these folks, perhaps even to reach out and let one of them know the impact that they had on you. And then I look around the room today, the power of Christian community. I think that groups like this, gatherings where we come together consistently with other believers, to be encouraged, to be challenged, to learn, to refocus our eyes on Jesus in the midst of the places where we're spending the rest of our week. These places are vital. I, as I was reflecting on the power of this cloud of witnesses, um, Harry Potter came to my mind. And in Goblet of Fire, in the fourth Harry Potter book, Harry Potter is having, I think it's his first duel with Voldemort. And they're in a cemetery. They are going wand to wand. And um, in the midst of this duel, it's getting really intense. And you're not sure if Harry's going to make it. And then all of a sudden, these lights begin kind of coming out of the wands. And they settle around Harry. And they form into Harry's cloud of witnesses, his parents. Cedric Diggory, powerful wizards who have come before him, who surround him and encourage him. And because of their presence, Harry has the strength to win that duel with Voldemort. Now, that's perhaps a silly example. But as I thought about that, it just made me wonder, as we experience the challenges to our faith in living out our lives in the week, wherever you find yourselves, 
If we were to picture ourselves surrounded by the great cloud of witnesses who have come before us, the folks in our life who have formed us, this community here, the heroes of the faith in scripture, if we were to picture and feel ourselves surrounded by that great cloud, how might we be able to deal more effectively with the challenges that face us? So the first thing, surround yourself by a great cloud of witnesses. Well, the second thing that the author of Hebrews says here is to throw off everything that hinders, especially the sin that so easily entangles. Now, in thinking about running a race and things entangling, I just had this image of somebody trying to run a race with their pants down around their ankles. <laughs> right? That would be probably a piece of advice that any good runner would give. Make sure your pants are up, right? Don't, don't wear baggy clothes that are going to be bunching around your ankles. It's going to tangle you up. You're not going to get very far in the race. Well, what are the things that are hindering you in running the race that God has set before you? What are those things for you? It's different for each one of us. What are the sins, the, the things that you are consistently tempted by? And then what are you doing to remove yourself from those temptations? Now that's a big question, and, and probably a lot of the time we choose not to focus on that. But I think that it's an important exercise for us to do. And one of the practices that in our community groups we've spent a good bit of time in over the last year is the prayer of examine. And I would raise that up as a wonderful tool to help put you in a posture consistently to be reflecting in a gracious way with yourself, where are the places that I have stumbled today? And then having an opportunity to offer that to the Lord and to choose a different path for the next day. The prayer of examine is something that it, it, you're encouraged to do at the end of each day, but you could do it once a week, you could do it once a month, as often as you do it. It simply provides a place to reflect back over the previous period of time, to look for places where God was present with you, places where you felt kind of the absence of God, where perhaps you walked away, kind of paved your own trail for a while, and to simply say, I'm sorry for that, and then redirect. We, a couple of times in this last week with Alistair and Amelia at night, um, Pray As You Go, which is an app you can download on your phone, has a prayer of examine for kids. It's five minutes long, and it's lovely. And we just laid in the kids' bedroom with the lights out, and we did this prayer of examine together. And one of the things that it asks um, is, as you look back over the day, is there anything that you are sorry for? Is there anything that you're sorry for? And then it just gives you a space to apologize, to say sorry to God for that. It can be as simple as that. But having a place where you intentionally reflect back can help you identify the things that tangle you up, that get in the way of your being able to run the race that God has laid out for you. I have another picture if you want to throw it up. Um, recently, Mark and I have had a number of conversations with folks at Sanctuary about the Enneagram. Now, the Enneagram is one of many different personality inventories that you can do. This one has had a lot of um, work done around it by people of faith in recent years, however. And one of the things that's interesting about the Enneagram is that um, it helps you identify your root sin. Now, that sounds pretty depressing, right? That it would help you identify your root sin. I am a one. And the way I was actually able to locate myself within the Enneagram is by going, okay, 
when I'm in a bad place, anger is my chief sin. Mark is a nine. Just calling that out. <laughs> Personality profiles, you know, they're, they're not everything. But the Enneagram can help us identify the, uh, the place that we tend to gravitate to when we are unhealthy. The Enneagram has come up a lot for us recently, and so Mark and I are actually talking about trying to get a date on the calendar in the fall to do a one-day seminar on the Enneagram. Now, the purpose of, of identifying your root sin is not to dwell in guilt, but then to be able to chart a course towards health. And that's the thing that I love about the Enneagram is that there's, it's all about moving towards health. And it helps paint a picture of who you are, your best self, as well as your shadow side so that you can move towards health. So I think you can look ahead towards that and hold Mark and I accountable to actually getting that scheduled. So... Identify the things that entangle you, and then intentionally clear those from your life. And then the third thing that I think is vital to helping us run a good race is keeping our eyes on Jesus. Mark and I had dinner recently with some friends of his from when he was in college, and I'd never met them um, but they are a wonderful Christian couple like us living in Seattle and um, she was talking about uh, a conference that she had listened to recently in podcast form, and they had had a panel of Christian artists, and they were going down the line and asking each of the artists to reflect on, over the previous year, how their art and how their faith had changed. And person after person um, shared about how over the last year, they had um, really begun to wrestle, or their their beliefs had kind of begun to shift and, and, and soften, and there was a lot more kind of question and ambiguity that they were sitting with. And so just kind of a lot of um, questions that were kind of admitted by a lot of these artists. The last woman in the panel, um, rather than answering the question, she kind of looked down the row of folks who had answered before her, and she said, y'all, if you are wrestling, if you are struggling with doubt, if you do nothing else, cling to Jesus. And she just kind of preached to the panel. Doubt is okay. Questions are okay. But in the midst of that, if you do nothing else, cling to Jesus. So I want us to hear that. We live in the midst of a world that is constantly calling into question our Christian faith. Doubts are okay. But in the midst of those doubts, if you do nothing else, cling to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. All of these other heroes of the faith that were listed out in Hebrews 11, all of the other cloud of witnesses that were called to your mind as I asked you to reflect back over your life, these people are wonderful. They are role models, but they are, like us, fallen human beings. We can't ultimately follow any one of these individuals without being led astray. Jesus. Cling to Jesus. The author, the perfecter of the faith. So three different things that the author of Hebrews encourages us towards. Surrounding ourselves by a great cloud of witnesses. Throwing off everything that hinders, which means taking the time to identify those stumbling blocks for ourselves. 
and then keeping our eyes on Jesus. One of the best ways that we can keep our eyes focused on Jesus is by being in the midst of the stories of Jesus' life in the Gospels. There is so much out there written today by Christian authors, blogs, podcasts, so many things that we always feel behind, all right? There's never enough time to read all the good stuff that is out there. But I think the result then can be that we're reading about Jesus in all of these other places rather than encountering Jesus in the Word of God in Scripture. So I just want to encourage us to not let this book fall to the side as we kind of run after all of these other interesting things. And so what I'm going to do is, as I lead us to the table this morning is rather than doing it the way that we normally do it, I'm going to lead us through an imaginative encounter with Jesus in the Last Supper. And so I'm going to invite you, I think we've done this before, we've done this in community groups for sure, um, to just close your eyes, and we are going to place ourselves imaginatively at the Last Supper with Jesus. I think in some traditions, using the imagination has been looked down upon. I think that it's an amazing tool to help us connect with Jesus. So this is the account out of Luke. So we're at the Last Supper, and I just want you to imagine being there with Jesus. Picture maybe you are one of the disciples. Fairly recently, you have just made a long journey from Galilee, about 80 miles. So how might your body be feeling right now? It's hot, dusty. You're in Jerusalem, a bustling city. It's around the time of the Passover. There are lots of people there. Jesus has sent a couple of the disciples away to prepare a room, and we know that this room is an upper room somewhere, so picture that you are now sitting in an upper room someplace in Jerusalem. Now, it's very likely that the Last Supper happened not at a typical table like we have today, but we've learned about the, a triclinium. This is a low-to-the-ground table, maybe in a U-shape. Um, you're probably on cushions, kind of reclining on your side at this table, probably brushing up against folks on either side of you. <clears throat> so when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Where is Jesus looking as he says these words? After taking the cup, Jesus gives thanks and he says, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Imagine hearing those words from Jesus' lips, being one of his close followers, loving him so much. How do you feel as he talks about not drinking it again? And he took bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Picture the feel of that bread as it's handed to you, the weight of it in your hand. In the same way after the supper, Jesus took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Imagine taking that cup, drinking from it, passing it on to your neighbor with those words ringing in your ears. The one who is going to betray me is here with me at the table. What feelings does that evoke? Now, as we prepare to come to the table, I want you to stay in that place, reclining at the table with Jesus' words ringing in your ears, and take a moment to have a conversation with Jesus. Share with him what is on your heart. The reality is that each one of us betrays him in different ways. So take a moment to talk to Jesus about what that looks like for you. Is there anything that you need to set aside? And as you think about focusing your eyes on Jesus, maybe in a fresh way this morning, maybe take a moment to talk with Jesus about what that might look like in this coming week. We ask for his strengthening to do that. Now, as we anticipate coming to the table, take a moment to thank God for the ways that you've experienced his provision this week. And to thank him in advance for the ways that he will provide in this coming week.
Jesus, we are so grateful that you love us, that you are here with us. I'm so grateful that you provide for my needs, for our needs, that there is nothing that you call us to that you don't also equip us for. Lord, thank you for this table, for this tangible reminder of your love for us, your provision. Lord, I pray that as we come forward and receive these gifts, that we would be strengthened for whatever it is that you've put on our heart this morning. Lord, I pray that as a community, we would be a people who are running the race well, that we would have the courage to step out of the things that are entangling us, the sins that are tripping us up. Lord, I pray that you would protect us from any feelings of guilt or despair, but that where we feel those tendencies, you would draw us towards community, and that in community we would find the encouragement to live a different way. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Amen.